today we're going to discuss a very important topic. This is going to be a very special podcast. This is a topic that is mostly overlooked by the average public. It's certainly not going to be talked about in the likes of, say, the mainstream media or, quite frankly, on any alternative news websites. Under normal circumstances, at the end of each podcast, we always say we would appreciate it if you would pass us along to friends, family, and known associates. However, today, given the nature of the topic, we would urge you to share this with as many people as you can. If you know someone who is looking for answers, like many of us are, we believe we might be headed in the right direction. Today, we're going to discuss the real target. You found it. No nonsense. No scripts. Real people on real issues. Hard-hitting and action-packed with logic, reason, and common sense. Everything you need and everything you've been looking for in a podcast. This is Dynamic Independence with Johnny Anderson, Bruce Adams, Marty Foster, and GP. Welcome to it. I'm not going to do the honor of saying the day today. And the reason I'm not going to do the honor of saying the day today is because this one needs to be kind of universal. So this will be one that we talk about for quite some time because this is going to cover some very interesting information today for those that are looking for a basis of everything that we're seeing now. Uh, I don't want to get too wrapped up in modern, um, I guess, stories like what we're doing now as far as like, okay, yeah, this this happened today and all of that. I, I want to talk about that today. I started thinking today that a lot of information is now starting to come out and the goalposts are being moved. They're in the process of, of doing that now. And the reason they're doing that is because they've been caught on several fronts. They cannot duplicate this winter what they did last winter. So they have to change. But information is coming out and it's coming out fast about these vaccinations. This dropped a couple of days ago, and this goes to a larger point. This dropped a couple of days ago. This is what prompted me to want to get into this today. Now, Bruce, you and I haven't actually really pulled anything. We're just gonna we're just gonna go off some reference here. That's all we're gonna do today. In fact, this is probably the only this well, not probably. This is the only article that I'm going to reference today. And this is artic an article out of Die Welt newspaper, which is an, a newspaper, mainstream media newspaper out of Germany. The Heidelberg chief pathologist calls for more autopsies of vaccinated people. Okay, why is he doing that? First of all, what is a pathologist? Bruce, can you give me, I, I should have had this ready for you, but can you give me the definition of what a pathologist is so we're on the mark and we're not making any mistakes? All right. The uh, textbook definition, if you will, is a scientist mm -hmm. who studies the cause and effects of diseases, especially one who examines laboratory samples of body tissue or diagnosis for forensic purposes. Okay. So basically, when somebody passes on, when somebody dies of whatever, you call in one of these people and they make their assessment. They're the ones that do all the autopsies, the investigations and everything, and they give you a definitive cause of death. In order to better understand the effect of vaccines, many more, I, I'm translating, so you have something, sometimes things are very brash when you translate from one language into another, and sometimes things just don't translate, so just bear with it. Uh, many more corpses would have to be autopsied. You'd normally just say patients, but you know, anyway. Uh, demands or the or, or cadavers, yeah. Demands the Heidelberg chief pathologist. Now, this is a guy that's been doing this for like thirty-five years, so he's not just some slouch that they picked up off the street somewhere. And to be quite honest, the University of Heidelberg, that is their prestigious medical school. That is their highest medical school in this country. So if you want to get a good medical education, that's where you go. You go to the University of Heidelberg. If you want a degree in medicine that will get you into the medical field worldwide, you go to the University of Heidelberg. And this is their chief pathologist at that university. So he's very well qualified. Peter Schiermacher assumes that a considerable number of unreported cases of vaccination deaths, but he's faced with serious opposition. Opposition? He's a renowned pathologist. 
in one of your top medical schools. Shouldn't you listen to him? One would think so. The chief pathologist at the University of Heidelberg, Peter Schiermacher, urges many more autopsies of vaccinated people. In addition to corona deaths, the corpses of people who die in connection with the vaccination would also have to be examined more frequently. Now that is Dr. Schiermacher himself who said that to the German press agency in Stuttgart. The director of the Pathological Institute in Heidelberg even warns of a higher number of unreported cases of vaccination deaths and complains the pathologists do not notice anything about most of the patients who die after and possibly from a vaccination. Mind you, this is out of their mainstream paper over here. Now, these doctors that are doing this and, and making these statements, they're not doing this to cause any kind of trouble. They're just simply asking the question, hey, um, we should probably be looking at this because this is what we're finding. However, other scientists disagree with him on this point, as do the Standing Vaccination Commission and the Paul Ehrlich Institute. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Paul Ehrlich Institute. For a year now, corona deaths have been autopsied at the university clinics in the Southwest in order to better understand the disease. The state supports the COVID-19 autopsy research of the university pathologist with around 1.8 million euros. And Dr. Schiermarker heads the autopsy project, so he oversees the entire program himself. The findings of more than 200 autopsies so far have led, among other things, to better treatment and ventilation of COVID sufferers. The knowledge gained here helps to treat the sick better and more successfully and to save lives. Now, that's according to the science minister, uh, Theresa Bauer. Now, Schiermacher is a member of the National Academy of Sciences in Leopoldina since 2012. Again, another prestigious title that he has. The doctor now wants to get to the bottom of rare serious side effects of the vaccination, such as certain cerebral vein thrombosis or autoimmune diseases. The problem from his point of view is the following. This is according to him. Vaccinated people usually do not die under clinical observation. The doctor examining the corpse does not establish a context with the vaccination and certifies a natural death and the patient is buried. That's a quote from Dr. Schiermacher himself. Or he certifies an unclear type of death and the public prosecutor sees no third party fault and releases the corpse for burial. This is the problem we said we were going to run into is they would die later of something else. The studies we looked at that we referenced out of the University of Texas at Galveston when they tried to do this research back in 2000, what was it, 2008? I believe it was. 2012. Uh, some of, uh, I'm sorry. 2012. Some of it was. Yeah. Yeah. This is the problem that they ran into. All of them that were exposed again had an autoimmune response and they died of something else. 40 vaccinated people have been autopsied within two weeks. In Baden-Württemberg, the pathologist therefore worked with public prosecutors, the police, and resident doctors. This is, again, according to Dr. Schiermacher. More than 40 people have already been autopsies who died within two weeks of being vaccinated. Schiermacher assumes that, listen to this, this is very important. Schiermacher assumes that 30 to 40% of them died from the vaccination. In his opinion, the frequency of fatal consequences of vaccinations is underestimated. A politically explosive statement in times when the vaccination campaign is losing momentum. Oh, it's losing momentum, all right. As a matter of fact, in 45 days, they're shutting the mass vaccination campaign down completely where I am. The Delta variant is spreading rapidly and restrictions on non-vaccinated people are being discussed. Why? If you've got 40% of people that are dying that are vaccinated, don't you think you need to be discussing restrictions on the vaccinated? Oh, no, see, that doesn't play with the agenda, does it? The vaccines don't even work anyway. Like, it doesn't stop you from getting infected. So, no. I mean, Lindsey Graham was up the other day. Yeah, Lindsey Graham was up yesterday and he said, you need to go get the COVID shot. Now, I, I got I got the shot and I still got COVID, but you should still get it. Maybe somebody should explain to the astute senator exactly how vaccinations are supposed to work. Schiermacher received a clear contradiction from other scientists. Gee, I wonder why. The statements that there is currently too little knowledge about side effects and the dangers of vaccination are underestimated are incomprehensible, said the Paul Ehrlich Institute. Again, we will get into that shortly. 
in particular for serious reactions, which also include when a person dies after a vaccination, there is a reporting obligation under the Infection Protection Act, kind of like our VAR system, similar thing. Now, according to the head of the Standing Vaccination Commission, Thomas Martins, he says, I do not know of any data that would allow a reasonable statement to be made here, and I am not starting from an unreported number. Well, you're going to have to start somewhere, sir. There is no reason to assume a high number of unreported vaccination complications or even deaths emphasized the immunologist, uh, the immunologist Christian Bogdan from the Erlangen University Hospital. There can also be no question of neglecting the possible dangers of COVID-19 vaccines. The last few weeks and months in particular have shown that the surveillance system is working well. In Germany, for example, the rare occurrence of cerebral vein thrombosis after vaccination with AstraZeneca, which they say is about one to two cases per 100,000, I don't believe that, was recognized as a complication. Schiermacher insists on his opinion. He says that my colleagues are definitely wrong because they cannot assess the specific question competently. Now, he doesn't want to spread any panic. Like I said, man's just putting forth his scientific evaluation. And he is by no means opposed to vaccinations. Again, not anti-vaxxers here. None of us are. Never have been. Never will be. He himself, who also says, by the way, if you think that he's just being biased here, he himself says that he's been vaccinated against COVID-19. So if you're wondering, vaccination is an essential part of the fight against the virus, he clarifies. But you have to weigh up the medical reasons for vaccination individually. Yeah, that's what they're not doing. They're saying, oh, no, you're going to do this or you're not going to get to live a normal life. You get a new normal. Even after you do what they tell you, you get a new normal for that. From his point of view, the individual protection consideration is overlaid by the idea of a rapid vaccination of society. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Every agenda that we're seeing is following exactly that line. The Federal Association of German Pathologists is also pushing for more autopsies of vaccinated people. Again, this is good news. At least it seems on the surface, if nothing else, that you at least have some people that are interested in wanting to get to the bottom of something. Because any other time that you would put forth an opinion publicly, and you notice they're doing that as a group, they're not doing it individually. This doctor, this pathologist put his neck out there individually. The others didn't. They did it as a group. See, you can't just do this individually. You'll get, you'll get ostracized. That's where we are. You do it as a group. Oh, well, who, who said that? Well, we have a consensus. Okay, well, who said it specifically? Well, we don't know. We took a, we took a, random, a random vote and everybody voted this way or we had four abstentions, but we don't know who they are. See, they can't pick out who they need to cancel at that point. This is another reason they had to shut everything down. They shut everything down so you would be isolated. You would be driven into their system of virtual meeting, virtual learning. Then they could control the messages and that monopolization of perception to change your way of thinking. Only in this way could connections by performing autopsies on vaccinated people, only in this way could connections between deaths and vaccinations be excluded or proven. However, too little autopsies are carried out to speak of an unreported number. You don't know anything yet, and the general practitioners of, uh, and health authorities need to be made aware of this. Now, they sent a letter to the, uh, the health minister, a fellow by the name of Spahn. He sent that letter back in March. We're in August. They have yet to receive any kind of a response. Now, that right there, when I read that today, uh, we posted that a few days ago, but we had a lot of other things we wanted to get to in, in, the mean, in the meanwhile. But what prompted me to want to sit down and talk about that today? Again, that's the only article I'm going to reference today because it's extremely important and it goes to the larger picture. They mentioned something in here called the Paul Ehrlich Institute. What is the Paul Ehrlich Institute? This goes to a larger agenda. The Paul Ehrlich Institute. Now, most people in the world probably don't have a clue what that is. And most people, hell, in Germany probably don't have a clue what that is. This is a German federal agency, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, a medical regulatory body and research institution for vaccines and biomedicines. It was founded in 1896 and is subordinate to the Federal Ministry of Health. The Institute is a World Health Organization collaborating center for quality assurance of blood products and in vitro diagnostic devices. The institution was named after uh, an immunologist, Paul Ehrlich. Okay, now there is a difference of what I'm about to say. One of Germany's most prominent medical researchers at the time, and he was also the institution's first director. So it would make sense to just name the institution after him. This is also one of those things you can call just a crazy coincidence, but we'll get into that in a minute. The institution was founded specifically to provide a platform for Ehrlich's research. In 1899, it was moved to Frankfurt and named the Royal Institute for Experimental Therapy. So anyway, you get the idea, right? It won a Nobel Prize for medicine and all that stuff, right? So you get the idea, right? 
It's named after a you know very prominent, very historical individual. But there's another individual that carries that same name, just so happens, who is an American. The reason that I went on to that is because I looked at the name of the institution, and I've, I've heard of that institution. And when I first saw that last year, I thought, man, I know that name. I know that name. Why do I know that name? But it wasn't the German doctor from the 1800s. But instead, it's an individual named Paul Ehrlich, same name again, coincidence, who is an American biologist. Now, who is this guy? Well, he is known for his warnings about consequences of population growth and limited resources. He was also the professor of population studies of the Department of Biology of Stanford University and the president of Stanford's Center for Conservation Biology. He wrote a book in 1968 called The Population Bomb, right, which he co-authored it with his wife, Anne. Now, they made a bunch of dire predictions back in the 70s that a whole bunch of people were going to starve to death and it was going to cause problems and this and that. Okay, fine, right? Well, what are we seeing a lot of today? We're seeing a lot of agendas towards climate change. We're seeing a lot of agendas towards population and, uh, well, forced medical, well, more or less, uh, forced medical uh, experimentation against your will. What made me think, this guy co-authored a book, several in fact, uh, and I've mentioned a lot of those books here before. As a matter of fact, I mentioned one a couple of days ago and the one we're going to reference today. He wrote a number of books. Most notably, he wrote uh, Human Ecology and he wrote Global Ecology with the same authors as the book that I'm going to reference today. And this is a book that is extremely important to have. It is a monumental reference tool for how the world functions and how ecology works. You see, everything in the world has a balance. You have resources versus population, and then you have an environment that kind of works in harmony with all of that. If you have too many people and not enough resources, well, then you get the idea. These people believed that you would pit population against resources and mix in the environment. The rush towards authoritarianism had to take a change. They had to rapidly shift. Communism got a bad name under the Soviet Union, the Cold War, and all the rest of it. They had to change tactics. So it became about the environment, the green movement. They specifically talk in the book Eco-Science about the green movement, albeit they were discussing different aspects of it, but it's transformed and been adopted and brought up to the modern age. Eco-Science is a book that I've been looking for for about 10 years. No joke, 10 years. I've seen copies of this book go for upwards of $1,000, sometimes more. The lowest that I had ever found it was 200 And I actually found it on Amazon, if you can believe it. Now, I had it on there, and it was $1,000, $1,100, so on and so forth, you know, $500, $300, $200. day, a copy popped up that was $32. I didn't even think twice. I hit the buy now button so fast that I don't think my, my software had time to react. I'm going to go over specifically what they believe in. Now, they've said before that their ideology is rooted in Malthusianism. What is Malthusianism? It's very important for you to understand this. It's based on the ideology of a gentleman by the name of Sir Thomas Malthus. Who was Sir Thomas Malthus? Thomas Robert Malthus, born in 1766, died in 1834. He coined his basically his own ideology, more or less, called Malthusianism. I'm going to give you information today out of this book specifically from their own writings. And you ask, okay, well, this is just some university professor you're talking about. He co-authored this book, again, with his wife, Anne, and also with another professor by the name of John P. Holdren. And you say, okay, well, what's that got to do with anything? They're not involved in, in policymaking or decision-making or anything like that. John P. Holdren was the science czar of the last administration, the Obama administration, not the Trump administration. These people sit in meetings and set policy for the world based on their ideas. When a government agency is interested in population control, they don't call in other government agencies. They go to the university people and bring them in with theories and ideologies like this. So again, Malthusianism. They stated on several occasions, specifically, they are Malthusians. They believe in the ideology of Sir Thomas Malthus. So anybody who is a neo-Malthusian, which Ehrlich was a self-described neo-Malthusian, they are so completely identified with concern about population pressure that a note about the man in this book kind of seemed appropriate. And of course, they, they just slipped it in there. Thomas Robert Malthus, he was a happy personal kind of an individual, and he was an English country gentleman. Yeah, you notice how they, they like to frame that up. Yeah, he was, an, he was a gentleman of independent means. Uh -huh. Back during that time, that means that, um, well, you're either a thief or, <laughs> or you know how to be a con man or one of the two. 
His youth and early manhood were spent in the last years of enlightenment, the age of reason, a time when learned and wise men saw themselves on a threshold of a world of concord among men and nations in which want and oppression would not exist. Sounds almost like Marxism for its day, doesn't it? Almost. All discord, want, and cruelty were held to result from an ignorance of these laws, in which existed at the time, which led man to their disobedience. It was an age of very great hope when nature and reason were enshrined. Again, these are academics. You have to consider where it's coming from. Normal average people wouldn't talk like this. But again, they believed in the balance of population versus resources. So here's the thing. You ask, where am I going with this? Donald Trump said a couple of weeks ago when they were talking about the Green New Deal, right? Make no mistake. This is the basis of where this comes from. People like this conjured this stuff up. They want to get rid of all the livestock, right? They want to get rid of all the cows. You got Bill Gates out there saying, well, you want to get that number to zero. You got population, you got CO2. You want to get those numbers pretty near to zero. See, they haven't actually said it yet, have they? You're being told in subtle ways that people are the problem. Climate change, it's man-made, it's unequivocal, you can't deny it, you're dirty, you're bad, you need a sanitary pass to go places, you need to wear a mask because you're diseased. See, they're telling you without actually saying it. They're very clever, these people. Too many people. And Trump said, believe me, there's, there's plenty of dislike on the Trump side for me these days. Trump said, next it'll be people. They want to get rid of people. You watch. My point is, is that these people that come up with these these things, these these ideas about balancing things between population resources and the environment, they want to control population growth. Bill Gates himself has said he wants to depopulate the planet, more or less. You want to get CO2 to zero, what do we exhale? You're literally calling for genocide up on a stage and people are laughing at you. I've got the clip here. I'm happy to play it, but I've played it so many times and those that are listening have probably already heard it a hundred times anyway. But is what they're doing actually working? Has it worked? I would argue no. I would argue no. Their interference is what has caused the population to explode to this point as it is. This comes in many different forms. Most notably, you can trace it back, at least in the modern era, to Planned Parenthood. Of course, it wasn't called that. It was called family planning, put together by a woman named Margaret Singer. And you could go back as far as something called the Comstock Law. You can search that and take a look at what that is. Basically, the Comstock Law was passed by Congress in 1873. Uh, and it basically forbid the, well, forbade the uh, distribution of literature, paraphernalia about birth control. Different time then. But see, they go on to talk about Margaret Singer in this book specifically, and they're talking about birth control. America's heroin, right? You hear this? Heroin. This is how they talk about these people. America's heroin in the family planning movement was Margaret Sanger, a nurse. See, a simple nurse. Yeah, she was a heroine. She was a she was a hero. You hear this? And that's word for word. I'm not adding that part. Her main objectives, again, from the book, her main objective was to free women. Feminist movement, right? Free women from the bondage of unlimited childbearing through birth control. And her efforts thus were part of the women's emancipation movement. In 1916, Mrs. Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in Brooklyn for which she was arrested and jailed, as she should have been. As a result of her case, however, court decisions subsequently permitted physicians to prescribe birth control in New York for health reasons. Okay, for health reasons, I understand. You know, I, I said that these people are deeply rooted in the occult. Anytime you get any kind of totalitarian movement, it's always based in the occult. What does a cult demand? What does an occultic movement demand? They demand, every time throughout history, they demand human sacrifice. And you could go on up to the whole Roe v. Wade and everything, right? You can you can go into that whole case. We just don't have the time to do that. I'm, I'm trying to keep this to an hour or thereabouts. But they go on to talk in here about how this movement took hold in all these different countries, most notably Western countries. They talk here about counterparts to Margaret Singer existed in many other countries, especially in the Northern and Western European countries. And Planned Parenthood movements became more independently established in several nations. Their founders, like Mrs. Singer, were motivated primarily by the concern for the health and welfare of mothers and children. And their campaigns emphasized these considerations. You're concerned about the health and welfare of mothers and their children by killing their children. These are sick people. I just want you to understand, you as a listener, I want you to understand the root of what we're dealing with. That's why we're talking about this today. Bruce, would you, and I feel like I'm, I'm just, man, I'm rambling on here, jump in here, but what they've done as far as trying to do this whole 
Planned Parenthood family planning stuff, they haven't actually solved the problem of population growth like they initially wanted. They've actually exacerbated the problem of population growth by getting involved in all these other areas. They've dumbed people down so you can't reason, you can't think, you have no logic, you don't have any common sense, you don't have any responsibility. And so therefore, you can't make a responsible decision. They they talk in here about back in the 1950s and in the 1960s, those over the age of 30, couples over the age of 30 that had already had their families and they were done, you know, had their children and they were done. Because let's be honest, if you didn't have three kids in the 1950s and the 1960s, if you didn't have three kids, by the time you were 30, there was something wrong with you. At that point, if your family is complete, if you and, and your significant other, if your family is complete and one of you wants to go, if the guy wants to go and get clipped or the woman wants to go get her tubes tied or whatever you want to call it, that's your choice. You're making the responsible decision. OK, we're finished. We've had our kids. We, we don't want to do anymore. And as a result, for our own health and for our own responsibility and for the responsibility of our kids, this is what we're going to do. That's your choice. That's not what they're talking about here. That would be the responsible thing for people to do if they so choose. But people don't have that sense of responsibility anymore. Therefore, you don't have any relationship to the traditional family. That unit's been broken. As a result, the population has exploded. So technically, they are, they're, they're kind of, uh, I don't know if they've shifted a bit from what their original intentions were or if um, this was an uh, unintended benefit uh, that they've run into. but. To, to your point about um, uh, population control, and it, it's not really like they've dumbed down some of the population and some of the other hasn't. And uh, the, the ones that haven't uh, been dumbed down, they typically have fewer kids and they have them later in life. Um, whereas the ones that they intentionally dumbed down are having more. And in fact, they actually have more abortions as well, but they still have more kids. They're using that population that's dumbed down to their benefit. Basically, they created a problem and they're exploiting it. And in so doing, they're also using that population as a foot soldier, if you will, uh, a useful idiot. So in a sense, I still think they're doing they're, they're trying to enact what they're 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 wanting, you know, the, the population control and, and getting it down to whatever number that they're advocating for. I've heard, you know, many numbers over the years on, on which which it is. But I, I think. Yeah, they have an un, uh, like a unintended benefit with, with those people. Some of these quotes, and I, I want to go so, through some of these quotes, because just to give you an idea, again, the kind of person you're dealing with who wrote this book, co-authored this book, Paul Ehrlich, okay? No, again, no relation to the, the Institute, but the, like I said, the reason is the similarities are there, right? The name just happens to be the same. It just happens to be. I want you to listen to some of these quotes by Paul Ehrlich, the American Paul Ehrlich. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to... Ask yourself, are these some of the same types of mindsets we're dealing with now? Too many cars, too many factories, too much detergent, too many pesticides, multiplying contrails, chemtrails, contrails, airlines, inadequate sewage treatment plants, too little water, too much carbon dioxide, all can be traced easily to too many people. Again, that's a quote from Paul Ehrlich himself. Here's another one. By 1985, enough millions will have died to reduce the Earth's population to some acceptable level, like one and a half billion. Didn't happen, did it? In fact, it went the opposite direction. He said this next quote in 1980. In 10 years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish. Did that happen? In 1990, did that happen? Nope. No. No. All important animal life in the sea will be extinct. If the oceans die, we die. It's that simple. Again, next quote. Solving the problem, or excuse me, solving the population problem is not going to solve the problems of racism, of sexism, of religious intolerance, of war, of gross economic inequality. But if you don't solve the population problem, you're not going to solve any of those problems. Whatever problem you're interested in, you're not going to solve it unless you solve the population problem. Whatever your cause... It's a lost cause without population control. Again, does it does any of this sound familiar like agendas we're hearing now? Any, anything? Is, it, is any of this resonating with, I don't know, Agenda 2030, was formerly Agenda 21, then of course 2050, and so on and so forth? Any of this sound familiar? The climate change agenda? Is any, any of this kind of resonating? Uh, out of curiosity, what data is he looking at that he's coming up with those conclusions? Because I've seen no data that supports the the the, the data I've seen so says that 
Our current technology can support 14 billion people. That's current technology. If we create more efficient and uh, better procedures uh, going forward, that number is going to only increase. And because we found new technologies such as graphene, um, that, that, that's going to increase the viability even more. Because now you have materials that you can produce from recyclables. So I, I want to know where he's getting the data to support his um, hypothesis. Seems to be a lot of hypotheses, doesn't it? Remember, he said that most of the sea life, all important sea life, would be dead by 1990. Never happened. Again, another quote. The mother of the year should be a sterilized woman with two adopted children. Doesn't sound like a guy you'd want to have over for Thanksgiving dinner, does it? No, I, no. I mean, it, it's it's an honorable thing to, to adopt, sure. But like sterilizing mm -hmm. yourself? Uh, I'm sorry. No, what? Uh, that's That's your choice. We ought to take good care of everybody we have on the planet. Now, see, that I agree with. We should take care of everybody we have on the planet. But we ought to regulate the rate at which people join us. The old saying is, it's the top of the ninth inning, and humanity has been hitting nature hard. But you've always got to remember that nature bats last. You see, nature doesn't understand good and evil, sir. Nature understands one thing, and it understands balance. That's it. Now, this next one, this next quote that he said in the Associated Press on April 6th of 1990, he says, actually, the problem in the world is that there are too many rich people. Where have we heard that before? Is this guy just, is he jealous that he doesn't have kids of his own, doesn't have wealth? I mean, is he... No, is these, these people, no, nah, see, th these people, they, they, don't, they don't believe in any of the stuff that the average wholesome, fulfilled individual believes in. They don't have any of that spiritual belief. See, they believe in something else. They believe in something that is so contrary to how we live. They don't live in the same world as us, intellectually or spiritually. They don't live like that. They live in in theories and, and hypotheses and and that's it, and, and academic papers. And they only relate to other people in that field. They don't relate to people like us. They don't believe in that stuff. They think that they are at a higher level of intelligence and existence than the rest of us. Now, I'm serious. I, I'm serious. You're, you're laughing. I'm laughing at that idea that they think they're better than everyone else. That's well, what I'm laughing at. What are we seeing? What are we seeing now? We're seeing exactly that from that class of people, aren't we? The academics and the, the celebrities and the rich, you know, like Bill Gates and Bezos and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to do everything here to take care of you. Now, anyway, he goes on here about these quotes and all this stuff. Basically, you get the idea, right? You get the idea. So I thought, now that we've covered the root of what this is, right? This is, again, this is the root of this stuff. I thought I would have a look in this book and go back and start digging through because this is a, uh, well, it's quite extensive. It's... Uh, it's a thousand pages, so it's not exactly light reading. I mean, you can't retain everything in there, right? Your your brain's not a hard drive. So I thought I would go back and I would take a look and see what they had to say about epidemics, just because I was curious, right? We're in the middle of all of this, right? So why not? Let's take a look and see what Paul Ehrlich, his wife, and John P. Holdren had to say about epidemics. This book was written in the 70s, okay? was written in the 1970s. Again, you're not going to hear this anywhere else. I challenge you to go out and find this information somewhere else. In this discussion, in this conversation we're having, I challenge you to go out and find this somewhere else. You're not going to hear it. Today, the population of Homo sapiens, that would be humans, by the way, <laughs> the population of Homo sapiens is the largest in history of the species. It has the highest average density, and it contains a record number of undernourished and malnourished people. No argument. That's true even today. No argument. According to the World Food Program, even the United Nations, the corrupt UN, right? According to that, we have record numbers of undernourished and malnourished people. Well, we, we do now. You can't argue that. We do now because of COVID, for sure, because of supply chains. And to be honest with you, if we did it correctly, if we did it correctly, the United States and Brazil, just those two nations could feed the world at a surplus if we did it correctly. There would be no world hunger if we did it right. Bear that in mind whenever they tell you that, oh, people are starving because there's not enough food. There could be enough food if they would get the hell out of the way. I'm not even sure that we're at quote unquote record numbers for malnourished. We're at no, record I, I low numbers, I think. Yeah, because we we have we have an obesity epidemic in, in a lot of the countries around the world. No question. No question. Yeah. Even even in what are considered developing world uh, or developing countries, um, they even have an obesity problem. Uh, so, uh, no, with capitalism and, and these countries that are following capitalism, they've come out of things. But that's not to say we don't have locations around the world that do or, or excuse me, that don't have problems. 
I mean, Haiti, for example, with the warlords and everything. I mean, that that's a good example. So there is a, a few locations that we need to work better at, but it's not it's not the matter of getting food there. It's a matter of you have other underlying issues that are causing problems like uh, warlords, for example, in, in, in the Haiti. And you, you have corruption there that you have to get rid of first. Marty himself, who was serving uh, in NATO at the time, had the blue beret on and everything, was down in Somalia. And he watched under guard the UN unload the food and hand it over directly to the warlords to gain favor for the population. So, again, corruption. Uh, we, uh -huh. we have to fix corruption in governments and uh, various locations before many of these things are going to be solved, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Famines, wars, all those kind of things. That today, because of the technologies that we have and, and the, the global trade and everything that we have, those things are triggered by politics. So he goes on to say here, again, we're talking about epidemics, pandemics, it says the population or a rather small but important segment of it is also unprecedentedly mobile. What did Bill Gates say on the Ellen DeGeneres interview? Oh, we've got people moving all over the place. They're flying everywhere. They're spreading the problem. Sound familiar? Only they should be allowed to travel. Oh, yes. And, yeah. you know, yeah. And there is no pandemic for the rich and there is no pandemic wow. for government people. Look at um, Obama as a recent example in the party. Wait a minute. I mean, I know. Wait a minute. That was a sophisticated vaccinated crowd. Yeah. Uh-huh. According right. to the CDC guidelines, shouldn't have all those people been wearing masks? Yeah. They shouldn't have even been doing right. that technically right. by their guidelines. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. yeah. People are in constant and continual motion around the globe, and they're able to move from continent to continent in a few hours. Isn't that what, again, isn't that what Bill Gates said to Ellen DeGeneres? Oh, people are just, they're able to get on a plane and they can go into another country and, and travel halfway around the world in, in just a few hours. And that's, that's what the problem is right there. We got to stop all travel. Called innovation. The potential for, again, written in the 70s, the potential for a worldwide epidemic or pandemic has never been greater. But people's awareness of that threat has probably never been smaller. Again, does that, does that sound like Gates? Maybe saying it in a TED Talk, possibly back in 2015, almost word for word, almost. Gee, I wonder where he got the idea. Contrary to popular belief, medical science has definitely not conquered epidemic disease as recent experience with influenza, cholera, typhoid, yellow fever, and Lhasa fever have shown. Again, back in the 70s, we've dealt a serious blow to a lot of these things since then. Advances in medicine and whatnot, you know, scientific medical research and, and all that stuff. You know, we've made great progress in those areas. No doubt. No doubt about that. The behavior of viruses is not completely understood, but it is known that the spontaneous development of highly lethal strains of human viruses and the invasion of humanity by extremely dangerous animal viruses are possible. They're going to say some things in here, just to forewarn you, they're going to say some things in here that are very obvious, but they say in the next two lines, one or two lines after that, enough to cover themselves, but we will point those out. It is also known that crowding increases the chances for a development of a virus epidemic. Crowding. Gee, what have we seen this last year? Oh, no, 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 no you can't gather. Dr. Fauci's out saying now, no, that that uh, that Sturgis bike rally. No, that's that's going to cause too many problems. That's going to cause an outbreak. What, what happened to the uh, the Texas Rangers game? The first one that they opened full capacity, no restrictions. What, what happened to that game? Did did they have the, the problem with the two week delay? Uh, or anything? Did, did they have a problem? Did, did a lot of people die? Did they have the rushes and the surges in the hospital from last well, year? Uh, people were dying in the stadiums. I mean, the bodies oh. were piling up. They had to cancel the game because there's just so many bodies piling up. They couldn't play mm -hmm. a game anymore. Crowding increases it. You hear that? Again, written in the 70s. Should say an especially virulent strain of flu appear. <clears throat> it is doubtful that the United States and other developed countries could produce enough vaccine fast enough to save most of their populations. The, he, he's speculating that the, the, the flu is going to be like 80% fatal. What, what, what the yes. hell is he smoking? Oh, it gets better. Hold on. No, just hold that thought. It's a good question, though. What is he smoking? <laughs> it's a good question. He is a university professor, after all, at Stanford. You have to take that in consideration. Needless to say, the problem would be even more severe in less developed countries. Now, that's true. That part's true. It would be severe in less developed countries. And the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because you have to think about where we are in the world, okay? 
those of you that are listening to us that are in Western countries, you have to think about where we are. We are highly advanced countries in a lot of respects. Though we have declined, no question, we're still a lot more advanced than a lot of these less developed countries. They're out there talking about vaccines, right? Vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. That's, yeah, vaccine, that's all you're going to get. They're not talking about the most basic things. And I'm not talking about just nutrition. Of course, that's important. I'm not talking about exercise either. Of course, that's important. Those are things you should do naturally. The one thing, the one landmark thing that knocks out viruses, epidemics, pandemics, disease in countries are two things, running water and sanitation. When you have those two things in a country that are fully functional, established, and part of your infrastructure, you will knock out disease like that every time. So the problem here that he's talking about is not that these countries, they're not dying in these countries, in these less developed countries, because they don't have vaccines, as Bill Gates would have you believe. They're dying because they don't have running water and they don't have sanitation. They don't have clean water. They don't have proper hygiene. That's why it would be worse in those countries, not because they wouldn't have enough vaccines. On top of that, if you're not well nourished, if you're malnourished and you so much as catch a cold, it'll kill you. He goes on to say, certainly little effort could be made to save the most of humanity. Consider, for example, the difficulty the United States had in coping with the mild Asian flu epidemic of 1968. Was that the Hong Kong flu? That was, wasn't it? That was something that was barely reported by the media. I'm pretty sure it was. Could you double check? I think we talked about that. The Hong Kong flu. 1968 was the Hong Kong flu. That's it. Yep, that's what he's talking about. The Asian flu epidemic of 1968. That's it. It killed one to four million people globally. Mm -hmm. Globally. Now, the number of people that died in that, I'll get to that in a second. It was not possible to manufacture enough vaccine to protect most of the population. And the influenza death rate in 1968 was more than four times as high as that of 1967. Now, you might ask four times as high. Well, that sounds like a, you know, just a number that's, well, he had to throw that one in there, right? How many people died in the U.S.? of the Hong Kong flu in 1968. 613. That was it. 613. Hell, we lose more than that with the original flu strain. But society paid a high price for the disease in extra medical care and loss of working hours. How bad do you think we've taken a hit because of this nonsense over the last 12 to 18 months? More recently, the swine flu fiasco of 1976 and 1977 certainly did not build confidence that the public health machinery will be able to cope competently with future epidemic threats. The swine flu outbreak of 2008. Oh, yeah, they tried to do this, what they're doing now. They tried to do this back in 2008, but they couldn't do it. By the way, that vaccine that they put out for everybody for the swine flu That was actually based on what they had in stock from the 1976 and 1977 swine flu epidemic. They used the same pattern. The problem was, is that they actually had to destroy those vaccination supplies because it was found to be maiming people and killing people that had received it. Any of this sounding familiar? In 1976, an outbreak of a previously unknown disease occurred among a shipment of vervet monkeys that had been imported into laboratories in Marburg, Germany and in Yugoslavia. Now you might ask, okay, where are you going with this? All this leads to a larger point. This severe hemorrhagic disease infected 25 laboratory workers who came in contact with the monkeys and their tissues. Seven of those people died. Five secondary infections occurred in individuals who came in contact with the blood of the original patients. All of those individuals survived. Humanity was extremely fortunate that the first infections of humans by the Marburg virus, by the way, um, that's what we name viruses where they originally develop, right? Marburg virus, because it came from a lab in Marburg, Germany. Was that racist? Can't call it the Wuhan virus, can you? Now, this virus outbreak occurred around laboratories where the nature of the threat was quickly recognized and the disease contained. If it had escaped into the human population at large, and if the disease had retained its virulence as passed from person to person, an epidemic resulting in hundreds of millions or even billions of deaths might have occurred. Are you saying that a virus could have escaped a lab? Are you saying that the the workers got infected and... (laughs) It, it could have just, if it wasn't contained and, and they weren't open and transparent about it, you mean that, that that could have gotten out to the greater populace and it would have caused a problem? Among well-fed laboratory workers with expert medical care, 
seven out of 30 patients died. Among hungry people with little or no medical care, mortality would be much higher. Again, like I said, if you are malnourished, something as little as the common cold will kill you. If you have improper sanitation, if you have improper hygiene, disease and death will run rampant throughout your country. The infected monkeys passed through London in transit to the laboratories. If the virus had infected airport personnel, it could have spread around the world before anyone realized what was happening. Again, does any of this sound familiar? Anybody picking up on, I don't know, Fashion Week, Lunar New Year, Italy, Wuhan? Just saying. In addition, it is hardly reassuring that infection of laboratory workers with viruses is a rather common occurrence, and the potential virulence of possible escapes from labs is increasing. Now, they were talking about that back in the 70s. Do you think that it's a likelihood today? Possibly. The highly mechanized society of the United States is also extremely vulnerable to disruptions by such events as power failures, floods, and snowstorms. Is that climate change he's talking about? Certainly sounds like it. Uh-huh. Power failures, rolling blackouts, all that power grid was hacked. That's yeah, this darndest thing. You know, those that when, when those power grids get hacked like that, you have that outage and that disruption. What would happen if the nation were confronted with an epidemic that kept masses of people sick from work and caused the uninfected to stay home or flee cities because of their fear of infection? Isn't that what we were told to believe? Exactly that. This might slow or even stop the spread of the disease. Now that we've seen that theory right there in action, not true. Not true. So I would say that one's debunked on its face. But hunger, cold, especially in the wintertime, and many other problems would soon develop as the services of society cease to operate. What are we seeing now? Supply chains breaking down, isn't it? Almost total breakdown has been known to occur in much less complex societies than the U.S. in the face of, for example, the Black Death. Of course, I really don't think you could make a comparison to the bubonic plague as modern society. I mean, they really didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the supply lines. Maybe they did for the time, but nothing to what we have now or even what we had back in the 70s. A breakdown that occurred among people far more accustomed to a short life, hardship, disease, and death than the population of the Western world today. The panic may well be imagined if Americans were to discover that modern medical science either had no cure for a disease of epidemic proportions or had insufficient doses of the cure for everyone. The disease itself would almost certainly impede the application of any measures that would be taken. Again, does it sound like it's resonating here? Any bit of this seem like it's a little familiar? Distribution of vaccines, for instance, would be difficult if airlines, trains, and trucks were not running. Oh, let me guess. Jeff Bezos, the guy that runs Amazon, that has, well, quite frankly, the uh, the most successful logistical supply chain in the world, right? He can get you just about anything anywhere you want, pretty much. Oh, no, see, he can't help you because, um, well, that evil Trump, he's in office. No, we, he can't help you with that. Oh, but now that he's gone, oh, he's shipping those things all over the place. Oh, yeah, we're, we're happy to, to throw in whatever we can here. We'll, we'll give you, hell, we'll give you your own airline. That's fine. In many parts of the world, public health conditions are developing that have a high potential for disaster. Now, this is where he gets into a very interesting part. Now, again, we're talking about epidemics and pandemics. Keep that in mind. Modification of the climate. We're talking about epidemics and pandemics. Modification of the climate would also inevitably influence disease patterns. What are we seeing now? Record flooding, record drought. For example, the length of time viruses remain infectious is in part a function of humidity. Where are we seeing the floods? Western nations, right? Also in China, parts of India. A trend towards drying would encourage some, whereas others would thrive in increased moisture. It is suspected, in addition, that weather changes can trigger epidemics. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, weather modification, which that is a real thing, by the way. Not to the like crazy conspiracy theory level stuff, but weather modification is a real thing. They've been doing it since the end of uh, the Vietnam War. We'll talk about that at another time. As if the threat of a natural pandemic were not gruesome enough, there's always a threat of biological warfare or of an accidental escape of lethal agents from a biological warfare laboratory or conceivably from a laboratory engaging in genetic engineering experiments. Does that sound familiar? Any of that? Although most lay people, meaning the average person, have long been afraid of thermonuclear war, they are just beginning to grasp the colossal hazard posed by chemical and biological warfare. Any country with one or two well-trained microbiologists and even a modest budget can build its own biological doomsday weapons, constructing lethal viruses 
against which there is little or no resistance in human populations can easily be done in theory. Again, this is back in the 70s. Bring it up to the modern age. There were at one time rumors of the development by the American Chemical Biological Weapons Establishment of a form of, now this might give you some nightmares, a form of pneumonic rabies. Now think about that. Now rabies, as we know, is transmitted by biting, right? Rabbit, dog, bats, you know, that kind of stuff. Now this one that they're talking about, instead of being transmitted by a bite, is transmitted in the same way as the common cold, from person to person, via exhaled droplets. It's certainly possible, since under special circumstances, such as, you know, the ones like you have in, you know, caves and things like that, where you have bats in caves, something about bats in caves and, and that institute in Wuhan, it's some, something about that, I'm not, not sure. We are doing some bat studies or something, I think Senator Paul was talking about that with Dr. Fauci in the Senate testimonies, something about that. And it was something about that the bat lady in Wuhan, she was funded by the NIH, and she actually listed the NIH grant numbers on her research papers for the bat research she was doing to create things like this. That, that's, that's a conspiracy. No, no, just... Uh, oh, yes. Yes. There, comrade. Such a disease would be a disastrously effective weapon if it were to be transmitted by infected individuals before symptoms appear. 14 days, right? Oh, you might not be able to show symptoms of being infected with COVID-19 for up to 14 days. Again, this part right here might give you nightmares if you're not already going to have them. Think about this. This was being theorized back in the 70s. Think about what they can do now. Think about what is being done now. In places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they have the same level of security and standards as a dentist's office. Let me repeat this last line. Since the disease would be a disastrously effective weapon if it were transmitted by infected individuals before symptoms appear. Since once they do appear, rabies is 100% fatal. Other possibilities for lethal agents are many. Now see, you see, you see what I mean? They kind of drop the little hints in there, but in a couple of lines, they'll cover themselves with it. For example, anthrax. We've seen the anthrax attacks, which even in its natural state can be transmitted by contaminated aerosols, plague, Q fever, and encephalitis, to name a few. Disseminated in their natural forms or in the form of a special hot strain that are drug resistant or super lethal. Besides direct assaults on human beings, overt or covert attacks on a nation's food supply might be made by introducing plant diseases. Again, this is something we've heard about, too. This is also, um, as I said before, with other elite projects, they're telegraphing what's happening. When mm -hmm. they say, oh, this might happen, this is this is something we should be concerned about. It's literally them saying, it's right this here. is what to do. This is the, it is this, right this here. Is the book. This yeah. is it. The more crowded a population is, and the smaller its per capita food supplies, the better a target it would be for a biological warfare attack. Why would nations develop such weapons? Again, this is where they save themselves. Why would nations develop such weapons? For the same reasons they develop others. They hope to immunize or otherwise protect their own populations and thus avoid a biological backlash. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, that's a double-edged sword. Yeah, sure, sure. They call these people life scientists. Yeah, I would not call these people life scientists. I call them anti-life scientists. These weapons have a special appeal for small and poor powers, which see themselves threatened by larger, richer ones, and which lack the funds or expertise to develop nuclear weapons. Isn't China now in the process of moving to nuclear weapons because they didn't have them? Or they didn't have very many? Yeah, they didn't have many. They're, they're working on upgrading them. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, while they're upgrading those, they're doing what? working on a biological program with U.S. funding. I shouldn't say U.S., Western funding. We'll go that way with it. Chemical biological weapons may never be used, but that does not rule out the possibility of an accident. Virus laboratories especially are notoriously unsafe. Now, see, they, they actually tell you right there. They tell you right there. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you probably developed these things, but, uh, well, <laughs> you know... Uh, those labs, boy, they're just unsafe and you know, it's probably going to get out of there. So um, yeah, you might, you might want to be careful with that. Now, to give you an idea of the history of these labs, listen to these statistics. By 1967, some 2,700 laboratory workers had become accidentally infected with viruses transmitted by insects and 107 of them had died. 
their deaths were caused by just one group of viruses. Imagine how many others they're working with in there. Fatal accidents occur in laboratories where work is done on other kinds of viruses as well as other microorganisms. The inability of government chemical biological weapons agencies to avoid accidents was made clear by the Skull Valley, Utah chemical biological weapons disaster of 1968, in which many thousands of sheep were poisoned when a chemical agent, quote, escaped. Yeah, escaped. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't think it was an accidental escape. Uh-huh. And by the possible escape of the Venezuelan equine encephalitis from the Dugway, Utah Proving Ground in 1967. Now, the worst part about this was, and they're probably still doing this on larger scales, and they've probably expanded it knowing government. Congressman Richard D. McCarthy of New York announced in 1969 that the chemical biological weapons agents were being transported around the country in small containers on commercial airliners. Are you kidding me? These people can't balance a checkbook. In 1969, President Richard Nixon announced the unilateral renunciation by the United States of the use of biological warfare, even in retaliation. That's very important to understand now. We didn't have anything up until the Biological Weapons Convention written by Dr. Francis Boyle. He wrote a book on it called Biowarfare and Terrorism. It's $12 on Amazon. Pick it up. He explains everything in there. President Nixon directed that the stocks of biological weapons agents be destroyed and that further work on defense against biological weapons be transferred from the Department of Defense to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Now, you might be asking, who else might have an interest in furthering that development? Well, let's take a look, shall we? Again, this is from EcoScience, not me. This is from American Academia saying this. Destruction of U.S. biological warfare materials was systematically carried out in 1970 and 1971. Although in 1975, listen, remember, they were destroyed in 1970 and 1971. Although in 1975, it was discovered that the Central Intelligence Agency had not destroyed some toxins in its possession. Some levels of research might be continuing clandestinely today in the United States. Possibly. They lifted that pause on that gain-of-function research. That is the weaponization, by the way. That's what that is. They took it as far as they could. Then they had to move it. It would be a simple matter for a future administration to quickly reestablish biological warfare capability. Indeed, with the rapidly increasing ability of biologists to manipulate the genetics of microorganisms, the possibilities for creating deadly agents seem endless. Furthermore, there is little sign that the U.S. action has led to the end of work on biological weapons elsewhere in other countries. Biological warfare laboratories are potential sources of a man-made solution to the population explosion. Remember that line. We'll come back to it in a minute. It is essential that some way be found to block all further work on biological weapons for the risk of humanity is simply too great. You see how they save themselves with the next line? Uh-huh. It should be clear now that humanity is creating an enormous array of hazards that directly threaten the health and welfare of all people. Unfortunately, many of these hazards are poorly understood and many undoubtedly remain unrecognized at present. Now, that line that I just read previously, let's go back over that again. This is extremely important. Biological warfare laboratories are potential sources of a man-made solution to the population explosion. Now, why do I point that out? This is Bill Gates on Stephen Colbert, April 24th of 2020. In the near term, it's the scaling up of testing and prioritizing who gets testing and getting the quick results. In the midterm, it's these treatments uh, that can cut the death rate down uh, potentially uh, dramatically. And then the final solution, uh, which is a year to two years off, is the vaccine. So we've got to mm -hmm. go full speed ahead on all three fronts. The final solution is one to two years ahead, and it is the vaccine. If in everything we covered here today, and everything that I just shared from you within this book, it is very, very difficult to get your hands on this book. It's been out of print for many years. The average person doesn't understand what's in this book, and they don't understand the types of people that they're dealing with. It's as simple to some people as, I'll just give me whatever you're going to give me because I want to go sit back down in a restaurant. The level of evil that we are dealing with here is incalculable from anything that I've ever researched before in my days. They have adopted this idea, this Malthusian idea. It's clear. It is crystal clear by everything that we've covered today. 
I had no plans to talk about news stuff today. I didn't want to talk about that. This is where it all starts. This is the genesis of it. You would think that Gates, that that line that you played there of Gates talking, you would think he would um, choose his words a little bit better knowing history. But maybe he thought that the population was dumb enough not to catch on to final solution. Huh. Where have we heard that phrase before within the last hundred years where millions of people were removed? Now think about his past. Th- think about Gates's past and not just his. Think about his family. Think about his heritage. You have to go back and look at a gentleman by the name of Sir Thomas Watson. Who was Thomas Watson? He was the founder and creator of IBM. And this is mainline history. Anybody can go and look this up. Thomas Watson had no children. It's very important to catch this part. He had no children. IBM was the company that created the catalog system for the Jews in Nazi Germany. The tattoos on their arms, the serial numbers, that was IBM. That's how they cataloged them for the Holocaust. Thomas Watson was never charged at Nuremberg. He walked free. And you might ask, well, what has this got to do with Bill Gates? As I said, Thomas Watson had no children. One of his leading board members was Bill Gates's mother. He left his fortune to her. Bill Gates's father ran Planned Parenthood. Gates has been in interviews bragging about it. We talked about Planned Parenthood tonight. Bill Gates was given Nazi blood money to start Microsoft. And now he's built up his fortune through that. And he's laundering it all through his foundation to create these vaccines to deal with the population growth that Ehrlich and company talked about in this book. Now, that is not some crazy conspiracy theory. That's not some crackpot wingnut uh, idea. It's all in black and white in print. I told you that these people are, they're sick. They're rooted in the occult. And there's something about that, that occultist, I don't even want to call it ideology. There's something about that. It's almost like this code that they have where they have to tell you what they're going to do to you before they actually do it. They have to tell you that. And that's everything we covered tonight. That's all I've got. This was probably... um, this was probably one of the more difficult things uh, that I wanted to sit down and talk about. We haven't done one of these these long, serious ones in quite some time that have been a, a laser focus on something. Uh, and this was certainly it, uh, especially over the last year. This is this has probably been it. And this is something we didn't even really plan on. Uh, we didn't plan for this. We just sat down. The only thing that triggered this today was I was reading that article out of a German newspaper a couple of days ago. And I said, hey, wait a minute. I've got a book written by a guy with that name, that institution. Let's take a look at that. And it spawned all the rest of this. This is where we are. And these are the people that we're dealing with. And these are the ideas that we're up against. I'm not going to end tonight with any kind of fancy outros or anything like that. I'm not going to go through my usual, but I'm just going to leave it right there. I want to thank you for being here tonight, Bruce. I want to thank the listeners for taking the time to listen to everything that we sat down and we put together tonight for you. And everyone have a great evening.